Okay, so this husband and wife went to Vegas for their honeymoon, and they checked into their suite at their hotel. They went up to the room, but they suddenly smelled this terrible odor. Of course, upset, the husband called the front desk to speak to the manager. He explained to him about the disgusting smell and demanded a different room. The manager apologized, saying that there were no other rooms because there was a convention being held at the hotel that weekend. However, he did offer to send the newlyweds to any restaurant they wanted, paid for by the hotel, while the maid was sent to clean the room. After they ate, the couple went back to their suite, but the room still smelled terrible. Once again, the husband called and complained, a little more angry this time. The manager apologized again and said he would try to find them a suite at another hotel. After some time passed, the manager called back to tell him he couldn't find them another room at a hotel on the Strip because they were all sold out for the convention. He offered to have the room cleaned again, so the husband and wife decided they would just do some gambling and see the sights. After all, it's Vegas, remember? Once the couple had gone, the manager and hotel staff decided to all check out the room and figure out what was emitting that putrid stench. They went through the whole room, changed the sheets, the towels, replaced the curtains, cleaned everything as thoroughly as possible. Despite all these attempts, when the couple came back, the smell still hung heavy in the air. Enraged, the husband began to tear everything apart to find the smell, ripping up the upholstery and the carpet. He ripped the top mattress off the box spring, and inside was the rotting corpse of a woman. Have you heard the story of and written on the wall? And everyone blood. has the different stories of oh, this happened to my brother. This they start telling you stories of the old. Family. There was this girl. It was back when we were little kids. To find out the truth regarding one of the most enduring tales in American lore. A story behind the story. Because it's just a story. Hello and welcome to the Just a Story podcast. I'm Jake and I'm Sam and we're here to tell you a story. Each week, we take a look at the stories that we tell over and over again, what our fears and fables, myths and misdeeds say about us as humans. I'm going to welcome all of our wonderful listeners back. Oh, you pretty, lovely, sweet, angelic, angel-faced, cherubic, rubinette. I've gone down a road. I've gone down a road. I'm coming back. Okay. Hi, everyone. We are so happy to have you here with us today. And we do want to thank all of you, Rubenesque. Stop it. I told you. I was, okay. I was I dialing it back. I was bringing it back. see? <laughs> <laughs> I do want to thank all of our listeners for coming back and for leaving ratings and reviews on iTunes, for reaching out to us on social media, where you can reach us at Just a Story Pod on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, where we post fun things about every week's episode topic. That's true. We do do that. We also post weekly updates on our website www.justastorypod.com on there you'll find links to all of our sources and other information related to the topics we discuss we are not just making this up at least not most of it the witty repartee that we make up can we blame that on somebody else (laughs) i don't think that we're allowed to i looked into it hmm okay (laughs) And on our website, you'll find links to lots of fun things, such as our merch store. We have merchy, merchy, merch, merch. I just recently did a celebratory Freud's shirt, and I'm going to keep doing some special edition shirts that come out for brief periods of time and then go away. So even if you have your official Just a Story, Fears, Fables, Misdeeds, it's really hard to say fast, 
shirt may still want to check back and see what we are up to these days. And also on the site, you'll find links to our Patreon page, which is a great way to help support the show. So on there, you can sign up to be a contributing member of the Just a Story team. And in there, you can get lots of fun rewards, such as stickers, um, extra mini cast, Just the Stories. Just the Stories. It is a ripped from the headlines drama akin to Dick Wolf's famed Law and Order. Just kidding. It is a recap of crazy, true, stranger than fiction events that have happened as told through the journalism of the time. Or you can sign up for other things such as digital meetups or a chance to come on the show. So I do want to thank several new patrons that we have, such as Debbie Q. And Kendall Carly. And Kendall Carly. We want to thank all of you. And if you want a chance to help support the show, go ahead and check that out. Uh, One other way you can interact with us is the Just A Story Urban Legend Hotline. And that number for any of you wanting to call in is 512-222-3375. And the longer we keep that thing open, the more interesting the calls get. Oh my goodness. They are so much fun. Whenever we see we have a voicemail, we like stop, collaborate and listen, like automatically. (laughs) It is fun to hear all the stories. And we have, as you've seen, based episodes completely on stories sent to us and ideas. And so please submit your ideas in any which way you can. So Samantha, back to the story at hand. Ah, and speaking of the story at hand, we just wanted to let all of our listeners know that if you have been through any kind of trauma as related to domestic abuse or intimate partner violence, you may be triggered by some of the topics we're going to be discussing on today's episode. We also want to encourage you, if you or a loved one have been affected by domestic violence, to reach out to the domestic violence hotline. And that number is 1-800-799-7233. Or you can reach out to Paladin if you're in the UK. It's a wonderful organization. And that number is 020-3866-4107. So, now back to the story at hand. Yes, you have my permission to proceed with the story at hand. This is a super classic urban legend. It's on every list ever. So, this is one, as you heard at the top of the show, about a couple that checks into a hotel. And when they do, they notice this foul odor in the room. That's called a motel under $50 a night, is what that's called. We've seen a few of those. We have. We have put in our time. (laughs) And so, a lot of times this takes place in like pleasure cities, like Las Vegas. And they notice the smell, they drop their bags, they change, they go out. Go have some fun, some drinks, etc., come back to the hotel room and kind of just pass out. Right, the they're bed. too too schnockered to know any better. And the next morning, they wake up to the smell. It's worse. It's worse. Ugh. It's disgusting. It's foul. Are you sure it's not them? If they were in New Orleans, it might have been them. True. They fell on Bourbon Street, and that will stay with you for at least a month. So they call the management. They complain. A lot of times they send somebody up to clean it. They clean the whole place and the smell's still going on. So looking around, trying to find something. And sometimes it's the maid, sometimes it's the person. They reach under the bed, under the mattress, or under the bed, depending, 
to see if anyone's left any gunk there, any rotting food, etc. And they reach and they grab a hand. A human hand? Yes. Ew. Oh my God, my trip advisor of you would be scathing. There was hair in the shower and a dead body under the mattress. <laughs> One star. Hard pass. So all I could think about as we were reading about this legend and working on this episode was the time after the Willie Nelson picnic. And we went in the hotel room and like had to wait forever. And then we went up there and our sheets were gross. And like we came downstairs to tell the management that the sheets were gross. But we got behind an irritated Australian. <laughs> Who apparently they lost his booking. And he proceeded to take his clothes off. And say, I'm just going to sleep on the couch. And like he was in cowboy boots and briefs, screaming at the lady in a thick Australian accent. This was uncivil and very, very, very disappointed in the service. So we got a, we got a room, clean sheets, and a show. After a show. After a show. So that was fun. Not a dead body, but still memorable. Thankfully, I'd prefer the... Mostly naked Australian in cowboy <laughs> boots. So we've talked a lot about hotels before in previous episodes. Like the hotel episode. Yeah, that one. And in that, we also talked about the cities that hotels are in and how hotels create this kind of stand-in home for ourselves. Right, the public-private sphere. And so by looking at this as a stand in for a home you can easily extrapolate that this could happen anywhere right but the reason that this is so horrifying is because there's someone coming behind you quickly to find it or that you find it oh, without that knowing you're that. the one that found yeah. it like you're almost complicit in what's taken place because you didn't know right that second you were not princess in the pea right no you were drunkard in vegas <laughs> so you know if you'd had any class about you if you'd been a, a regal person like the princess and the princess and the pea, you would have, have felt that disturbance immediately and never would have been able to sleep through the night. But what kind of animal are you that you didn't even notice? When also you look at the place where it was hidden. It was hidden in the bed. Right. Under the bed. Under the Sometimes bed. in the box spring. It depends on the story. And how thorough they're being. Yes. How many details are added by your friend of a friend? If I told the story, you'd get lots of detail. And you look, you think about places like the bed or the closet. And those are the two most common places that we hide things. That's where we keep our safe boxes or, God forbid, like guns or, you know, a little safe with our jewelry in it or et cetera. Or your box of old love letters. Or your box of Playboys if you're old school. Or the password to your porn sites if you're if you're a modern day masturbator. But it's interesting because these two uh, these two places that where you hide things normally would be that kind of like immediate idea of where you would place the body. I wouldn't have that idea. I would never think that a body was going to be in a house or like a place where people lived. I would think of it being in a field, in a ditch, in a trash dumpster. I would never never expect that. But it's like if they didn't have especially like think back to the 80s or the 90s you can check in on false identity mm -hmm. they don't have your credit card information they don't have your name they can't track you down this could be a completely anonymous dump 
Right. I guess you could pay cash and leave a fake name and nobody would be the wiser, but my like it would not happen today, I guess is is what I'm thinking. Well we'll see. Oh. Oh, please don't take that don't take that away from me. So about the background of the story, one of our favorite folklorists, Jan Held Bon Von. Jan Von Bon. Jan Bon Von. Jan Bon Von Han. He wrote in his book, The Baby Train, that the dead body found under hotel bed legend was first sent to him in 1991. Really? Yeah, and that every version he had, it was in Las Vegas. But if you look around, there you know, changes, but usually it's in like Vegas, New Orleans, places like that. But whenever he was researching it, he couldn't find any kind of checkable details, and it led him to believe this was just kind of an apocryphal tale. Oh, Jan. <laughs> oh, honey. Oh, pre-internet. Of course, he worked for a newspaper at the time. He should have been able to search this because the legend may actually come from misremembered actual news stories. Wait, misremembered how? Because these are not just a story. Okay. Somebody, you know, before they have their coffee, reads a story in the newspaper and then repeats it at the water cooler and thus... It changes in telephones and morphs and twists and becomes an urban legend. Right. Chinese whispers, which, by the way, UK and Australia people, you have to stop saying that. It's just racist. It's so racist. (laughs) But in searching this, there are over 30 cases of tourists finding bodies under the bed. Not at Disney World. Not one that I found. Okay. (laughs) It's like, don't ruin everything. So these are real. These are not reported. These are not like people claiming it. This actually happened. Police investigated. Oh, yeah. Okay. So we could go through a million of them or more than 30, but (laughs) I found two good ones. Let's, Let's do two. Two's good. So one of the oldest reported versions of this comes from 1982. Ten years before... Jan was looking. Yeah. And so this is the story about Richard Kuklinski, Daniel Deppner, and Gary Smith. Wait, Kuklinski? Does that sound familiar? That's the Iceman. The Iceman. I know that one. He was a convicted murderer and notorious contract killer. He worked for several Italian-American crime families, and he at one point claimed to have murdered over 200 people. Over a career that lasted 30 years. I buy it. The number changes. Like, from his account, it changes. Well, he's remembering. Or forget. I, 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 think, he's, I think he believes that. It's a big number to count. <laughs> and so, these three guys often ran auto theft scams together. And so, one day, Kuklinski and Deppner decided to kill their partner, Just Gary Smith. For shits and giggles? Well, I'm sure they had some beef. So, that he pissed the Iceman off, so... Don't piss off the Iceman, yeah. because he's going to feed you a cyanide-laced hamburger while you're in a New Jersey motel room. Okay, I'm pulling out my list of ways that I don't want to die, and adding that. Okay, now, moving on. Not moving on yet, because Kuklinski, in some reports, also finished off Smith by strangling him while watching him, I'm sure, when watching him die of poisoning proved tiresome. So they did stuff. He was taking too long to die, so he just strangled him. Well, they were like, either the saturated fat in this burger will kill him, or the cyanide. This is taking way too damn long. There was no cyanide. They just put bacon and were hoping. 
So they did stuff Smith's body under the bed and left it there. It was found four days later. And during the intervening four days, the room had been rented to others each night. Guests had smelled it, but none thought to look under the bed. I wouldn't look. Are you fucking kidding me? No way. I would think it was just like someone left a banana rotting. No one eats bananas in New Jersey. A burger rotting. Okay, fine. Not a McDonald's burger. No. Because as we've seen, those don't rot. No, there's no way I would have looked. You would have looked. And then you would have been like, we have to change rooms. And I would have been saved. But personally, I wouldn't have looked. Well, let's move forward in time to a more recent case. So this occurred in 2010. Miss Sunny Millbrook of Memphis, Tennessee, had been staying in a budget inn when she went missing. Now, she was reported missing whenever she failed to pick up her children from school. So they couldn't find her anywhere. Searched and searched and searched. And 47 days later. No. They found her body inside the frame of the bed. The room had been rented approximately five times and cleaned by the hotel staff numerous times since her disappearance. So one woman, Rhonda Sargent, stayed in room 222 at the budget inn during this time. And she said, I'm just at a shock because I'm like, okay, I laid on top of this lady's body. This is somebody's daughter. Mom, why didn't they investigate this fully? And then she says, in the room when you sat on the bed by the nightstand, you got this real foul odor that just hit you. So she told staff and no one came to check it out. And eventually she moved to another room and then eventually moved to another motel. She said, we were sleeping in that bed. So it has spooked me. I really don't want to stay in another hotel without picking up stuff and looking up under it and everything. At the minimum, if not like having a cadaver dog go in before you. I'm I'm training the dog or the children. Our miniature dachshund would be the worst cadaver dog ever. What do you mean? He's perfect. If he was a little more spry and not old. Woof. But they did actually find the murderer. Lakeith Moody, and it was her kind of boyfriend at the time, and he was found guilty of first-degree murder. That at least there was a resolution, even if it took 47 days to find her. And people slept on top of her. Oh my god. That chain of evidence is busted. But the idea of things under the bed, bodies under the bed, is a haunting one. Because the bed is a safe, happy place. It's where after... A long day, you go and cuddle up and go to sleep. And to have something so horrid right there under you is extremely disturbing. Right, and what you said about hiding things under the bed. I think that we're going to take that to a whole new level with a story. So on May 19th of 1977, 20-year-old Colleen Stan was hitchhiking because her car wouldn't start. And she was leaving Eugene, Oregon, and going to see a friend in Westwood, California, which was 400 miles away. And she'd made it to Red Bluff, California, which was around 100 miles from her destination. Okay, we have learned from our hitchhiking episode that this could be a terrible idea. It was! Spoiler alert, it's it's always a bad idea. Public service announcement, do not hitchhike. But she wasn't being silly about it like the group of five guys pulled over and like hey you want to ride with us and she was like 
No. But then a van pulls up and there's a guy and his wife and a baby. That seems safe. Right? And so she's like, cool, I'm going to get a ride with these folks. So she was picked up by Janice and Cameron Hooker. Who were not exactly the Cleaver family. No, they were the Hooker family. Both terrifying names. But Roy Hazelwood had some things to say about old Janice and Cameron. Who's that? He is one of the founding fathers of the BAU, uh, Behavioral Analysis Unit with the FBI. Uh, Silence the Lambs, criminal profiling, that whole shtick. Okay. He might know what he's talking about. Just a skosh. I'm a real big Hazelwood fan. Like, he's kind of my favorite on the Mount Rushmore. But he says, Janice was raised by overly strict parents. They had never allowed her to date or wear shorts or even wear a two-piece bathing suit, for example. So when Cameron Hooker entered her life, she had no experience. She was very naive and easily manipulated. They met when she was 15 and Cameron was 19. Roy goes on to say, Cameron was a very quiet type of person. In fact, when he first met Janice and asked her out, she said, you'll have to ask my parents. And they've never allowed me to go out before. So Cameron goes to her house and in a very short period of time, convinces those overly strict parents to allow her to go out on a date with him. Wow, he must have been a smooth talker. Just makes me think like sociopath kind of thing. Yeah, very unassuming at the least. And manipulative. Yes. So while they're out on their first date, he does some incredibly advanced bondage stuff with Janice. On their first date? Yes. Holy cow. But I think that she just lacked any frame of reference to know like what was normal and what wasn't. And she may have just thought this is what people did. I don't know about that. I think he manipulated her into it. Oh, I'm sure he normalized it and made it seem like, if you like me, you'll do it. And like, I'm sure there was manipulation, but I think that where if I were on a date with someone and they said, hey, how's about you let me hang you from this tree? I know you kept telling me no. Yes, I'd say no. But I just, I just don't want to blame it completely on her naivete. I mean, this guy was a manipulative, cold son of a bitch. No, he was. But she was also a very naive 15-year-old girl, which is a more pliable person to work with than if you were going after the world-wise old lady like me. Is that what you are? I'm an old lady. I'm a world-wise old lady. I I tell myself this. It's how I deal with the forehead wrinkle. If you'd stop looking at me like that. If you'd stop making me, I wouldn't have to do it. But um, Roy says on their relationship, when Cameron Hooker was torturing Janice, it played into his long-term goal to shape her sexual responses and shape her attitudes towards sex as being accepted of what was going on with him. It also convinced him that she was naive. It convinced him that she was easily manipulated, and it convinced him that he was going to be successful. Yeah, because a sadist doesn't just use physical manipulation no no no. it's also emotional it's also psychological that's a big part of it whether it's consenting or not yes they like to see the results of their endeavors as much as they like taking part in them they're almost a product results-based arousal instead of a process to borrow those terms from profiling but An attorney, Christina McGuire, who would later prosecute Cameron, said this 
And this is where we find the hookers in this current state. Cameron and Janice agreed that he could have a sex slave and Janice would get to get pregnant and have a child. And they agreed that he would practice bondage on that person who was kept against her will instead of Janice. So he had this pliable personality in Janice that he was extremely manipulating. To a degree that I don't think most people can comprehend. They'd been together for years at this point, and this had been going on since the very first time they went out together, and it had become normal in a way that I don't think it could have with someone that had any more experience. Well, she'd become like compliant with this role that he had pushed onto her and twisted her into. Right, and... She is what Roy calls a compliant victim. He says they're generally female, thanks Roy, and compliant or acquiescent in their own victimization in return for some trade-off. So he rewards her by allowing her to have a baby, and he will exchange her being allowed to have that baby for him to be allowed to have a sex slave. And this is where Colleen comes in. Yes. So Colleen is picked up by these two and their baby, a daughter, and taken at knife point while they're pulled over to go see ice caves. And she had noticed a box sitting on the back seat beside her, but didn't think anything of it. Right. Why would you? It was a wooden box. And she thought, okay, whatever. These folks are giving me a ride. I'm not going to question the box. Question the box. Question the box. What's in the box? What's in the hatch? Oh, different one. Oh, different. Oh, seven. And, yeah. Oh, and lost two awesome things. Yes, both good. Go see. But... Apparently, it was what would later be known as the head box. The what? The head box. So it was a wooden box that had hinges on the middle, and it opened, in Colleen's words, like a clam. And it opened, and then it would shut, and there was a hole for her neck, and the entire thing was lined with like insulated rubber and carpet in order to keep it soundproof. So they couldn't hear her scream. And she couldn't hear them. I think it was a two-way street. And they also didn't want her to be able to see where they were taking her. So they have her at knife point and they put this head box on her? Mm-hmm. And then where do they take her? Their house. Oh, okay. Their house in Red Bluff, California. And they bring her down to the basement. And initially, it's just her and him down there. And he used leather restraints to affix her wrist to the ceiling. And he assaulted her that night. He cut off all her clothes, and eventually he chained her to a table where she was kept for three days while he constructed a box. And Janice described the box as like a chest freezer, only shorter to the ground. Eventually, this is where he would restrain Colleen, and he would put the head box over her head and hang her wrist from the top of the box And then close the box and then turn off the light and close the door and leave her in the basement until he was ready to come get her out again. Eventually, she moved out of that box into a little kind of Harry Potter closet beneath the stairs in the basement. And while she was there, she would make homemade dolls for Hooker to sell to tourists. And then an owl comes and and gives her a letter. There were no owls, Jacob. God damn it. Which, by the way, if you know anyone who bought a homemade doll in Red Bluff, California, during 1977-78, that thing's haunted. (laughs) 
some bad juju. So Hooker and his wife kept her locked in the homemade boxes in the cellar or in the cellar compartment for years. And they would force her into a series of sadomasochistic sexual acts and torture her using electric shocks and matches. And then in 1978, they moved to a trailer. And the thing about a trailer is... No cellars? No cellars. So they needed a new place to keep Colleen. I have a feeling I know where this is going. Colleen says, they had a waterbed, which that is the first bad sign. And what he did was he constructed these boxes underneath it, underneath the pedestal of the waterbed. And basically, he tells me to get on my knees, and then he tells me to crawl in this box. So I crawl in there, and he closes it all up. And this is my new home, for lack of a better word. So she was kept in a box under the bed. Yes. I mean, was she there all the time? Not initially. At this point, they had begun to allow her out to like babysit their kids. What? Yes. Janice had had another baby, which she gave birth to on the waterbed while Colleen was underneath in her box. Oh, my God. And Colleen would be allowed out to babysit them, work in the garden. She was actually, at some points, allowed to go jogging around the park, around the neighborhood. But at night, after the kids went to sleep, she would be taken out of her box and... She described her routine this way. He would come in in the evenings, give me something to eat, give me something to drink, let me use the bedpan, and then he would hang me up and whip me. And this was done in a shed that Colleen actually was forced to help construct. Oh, my God. And she was also put on a torture rack. Like a medieval torture rack? She said it was like a medieval device where... They used to stretch people and dismember them and kill them, those kind of things, in the old days. So he would wind it up and stretch me out. Everything hurts. Everything is painful when you're being stretched. So I'm just praying, dear Lord, I'm going to die. Please help me. So he messed me up pretty bad with that thing. So he would just do that and just leave her there? So while she was on the stretcher, sometimes he and Janice would have intercourse in the room with her. The subject of Colleen and penetrative sex with Hooker was very wrought and interesting, gives you insight into Janice. Part of the deal with taking the sex slave was that he was only allowed to have sex with Janice. And at some point, she did give him permission to have sex with the sex slave. And apparently, she didn't think he'd actually do it. And when he did it, she vomited loud enough that Colleen could hear her in the bathroom throwing her guts up and crying. So he must have been manipulating both of them to such a massive degree. He was doing everything in his power to maintain control. And to that end, he even introduced a contract. A contract with a sex slave? Yes, it's very Fifty Shades of Grey, which is why I think Fifty Shades of Grey is terrible and lets people justify really shitty things being done to them under the guise of them being sexy, and I will get off my soapbox, my bed box, my whatever box, and go back to the story. But this is all I could think about, is like, this shit really happened. It's terrifying. And now we're pretending like it's cute and funny when a nice-looking guy does it. Now wait, wait. Caveat. Huge caveat. You can have a consensual sadomasochistic master-slave relationship and it go perfectly fine and not 
be this type of situation. That's an important thing to, to point out. It is, but it's not something that everyone should play at when they don't know what they're doing. And it's not something that you should be manipulated into. No, agreed. But anyway, Colleen says, he came down one night and his wife came down and he makes me read through this contract. And it goes through all this legal-like wording and about how I'm signing over my body and soul and that he owns me and that I couldn't say no to him for anything. In the contract, he stated that I was address- to address him as master or sir and that I was a- to address her as ma'am. It also stated that he would affix a collar to my neck, which he did. Where the hell did he get this idea from? I mean, did he just come up with this? Pornography. What? It was an idea in one of his uh, like S&M bondage magazines from the late 70s. So you can imagine how fun that was to read. Did you pull up the primary source for no, that? No, I didn't. I didn't. That was some deep tracks under the bed stuff. Nobody still has it and no one scanned it in. But Roy says that Roy Hazelwood again says that the slave contract played a very important role as far as Cameron Hooker was concerned. First of all, number one, it lent some legitimacy to what he was doing. And number two, it served as a prop. Like, it was a constant reminder and was imbued with sexual meaning just through its existence for him. So it was a prop for his sadistic fantasies. And number three, it validated his power over another person, specifically his power over Colleen Stan. And that is something as a sadist that he was continually striving to reaffirm to himself was that he was in control. Like he was the one in power. Yes. And that was extremely important to his psyche. I can't imagine just signing a piece of paper that says like, I will obey him and do whatever he wants. Even with all the manipulation would lead to what he was able to do to her. Well, you are neglecting to take into account the company. What company? The company. You know, season one heroes. Oh, Hornum Glasses guy. Not that, though. But like that. The company, according to Christine McGuire, the prosecutor, functioned thusly. Cameron tells her that there is a company that is an underground network of slave traders. It was a complete fantasy, but he made it seem to Colleen that it was a reality. And all Colleen had to do is look at her situation that she found herself in. After all, she had been kidnapped. She had been held as a captive. Why wouldn't she believe in the company? Because that's exactly the situation that she found herself in. It's like when you've jumped over that line to something that seems like fantasy, as in like in a bad book or in a movie or on Law and Order. Right. It's not hard to keep jumping, to keep jumping over those logical hurdles. I think once you have had a head box snapped on your head. You believe he might be part of this organization? Yes. Or be able to hire them? Oh, he said that Janice was an escaped sex slave and that he married her to keep the company from executing her. And that fits in. Uh Uh-huh. It fits in with the story so well. It's like, here's a real-life example. And it also makes him... The savior. Right? So, Colleen says, he said it was created to keep slaves in line and see if they were disobedient or tried to run away. They were like, go ahead, pick up the phone. They're listening. Go ahead, walk out the door. They're watching the house. You might as well put a shotgun to your head and pull the trigger, because they're going to get you. Holy shit. It's terrifying. It's frightening. 
She said, I tried to be a good slave because I was so afraid of the company. So he does eventually take the collar off that was mentioned in the contract. You know, begins allowing her to have those small freedoms around the house, like babysitting, gardening, jogging, those kinds of things. Right. He didn't need a physical restraint. He had that psychological power over her. She was afraid. Right. And Roy says when he takes the collar off Colleen, he's convinced she won't try to escape because he's convinced her of the existence of the company. Besides, fear is her collar now, which is a movie waiting to happen. A Lifetime movie? (laughs) I don't know what it is, but he says it so casually with such conviction and just like somebody who's like, well, obviously two and two equal four. Just so matter of factly. And it's just, oh, you're smart. (laughs) And she would run into other people. She would encounter other people. The neighbors knew her. She interacted with Cameron's family. Like his extended family? Like his mom and brother and stuff. And uh, what, How? What they did told they her say? she was a babysitter. And she was never around at night. Well, she was. <laughs> they just didn't know. But everyone just thought that she was just a babysitter, friend of the family kind of thing. She always seemed perfectly happy. They were, a neighbor said in an interview, normal as normal can be. If that's normal, I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> but she said that she never told anyone the truth about what was going on. I truly and honestly believed in the company and that they would hurt me. She had opportunity after opportunity to say something, but she was that afraid. But in 1981, a funny thing happens. I don't think there are funny things in the story. He allows her to go visit her family. Okay, that's weird. Funny weird, not funny haha. There will be no funny haha. And so in order to prove that she could be trusted to go visit her family, he had a test. And she says, he had me kneeling before him and he handed me a shotgun and he said to put it in my mouth and pull the trigger. Are you serious? Which I did. Holy cow. I had to do what he was telling me to do. Otherwise, I was not going to get to see my family. And so she does go to visit her dad and stepmom. And about that visit, her dad says, she'd lost quite a bit of weight, but she looked, you know, pretty much all right and he came up with her and she introduced him as her boyfriend I think and I didn't see him again until he came back for her I didn't ask too many questions because I didn't want to push her because I was afraid we wouldn't hear from her again he went with her Mm -hmm. but the dad and stepmom kind of put their heads together in this late 70s early 80s California way and looked at her homemade clothes And the fact that she didn't, they said that they didn't have a phone and they're like, maybe it's a cult. Commune. Cults was the, that that was the word he used. Yeah. It moved to cult by then. Yeah. The 60s would be commune. Yeah. And so he was like, maybe it's a cult and I guess we just need to wait it out. Maybe it's a phase. So she visits with her family for less than 24 hours and he calls the house, not telling her, you know, previously when he was going to be back. And he's like, I'll be there in 10 minutes. And so she hasn't seen them in years. He's going to be there in 10 minutes. She has to act like everything's okay. Or the company will come get her. Oh, yeah. They told her that the house had been bugged previously. Like they'd been, they knew about the visit and that they'd been cleared by all the red tape. Yes. They'd gone through the bureaucratic nonsense to get her down there. And they'd also purchased a trailer that was within sight of the house and that they were looking out the window with like sniper rifles. And if she acted up, they'd kill the whole family and her. She was terrified. But when they got back to the, hooker home 
she was placed back in the box under the bed. And for the next three years, she was kept there for 23 hours a day. Holy shit. So he like had to retrain her, I guess? Compensate. Yeah. And Roy says she was placed back in the box beneath the bed because he wanted to convince her that she was back in her role as a slave and take away any feelings of goodness she experienced as a result of being free for that brief period of time. Monster. Truly. He goes on to say, Cameron Hooker believed that all women were evil and that they deserved to be punished. He also believes that all women are there for his own pleasure and that if they don't meet his needs for pleasure, he can feel justified in punishing them. A lakening in there too. Oh my God. When I was pulling up newspaper articles about this, one article about Colleen Stan was right next to an article about Lake and Ing. These were prosecuted at the same time. Like near each other ish. Can you imagine? I would not leave my house if I'd read that newspaper. It's terrifying. Of course, I did recently learn that during the time that we were attending LSU in Baton Rouge, there were five active serial killers, which I did not know. In Baton Rouge, New Orleans area. Yes. So maybe I would have left my house. But in 1983, she was finally let out of the box again. And she was actually allowed to resume her babysitting duties and get back out and see neighbors and kind of be around a little bit more. And she was also allowed to take a job at a motel as a maid, which is huge. And she says, I was just delighted to be out of that box. I was happy to be able to go out and work and whatever, just be anywhere but locked up in that box. At this point, they were letting me sleep in the back bathroom. They'd put a chain around my neck and then put the other end around the toilet. You have to wonder what the neighbors thought. <laughs> like, oh, hey, that's a babysitter from four years ago. I'm sure they had a story. They were very good at making up stories. Very true. But then Cameron announces to Janice and Kay, they called her Kay Powers. They gave her a new name. They wouldn't let her keep her name. Um, that he wants to take another sex slave. He had complete power over both of them. Yes. And he needed someone else to exert his power over. Right. He needed to go through the motions of that reassurance, that reaffirming that he could control a human being. Right. He'd almost get that thrill again. Right. Because this is no longer a challenge. But in 1984, so she's been in, out of the box for around a year, Janice goes to her at her job at the motel where Cameron is not. And she says, hey, um, there is no company. You have to wonder what her reaction was. You know, like after that much training and manipulation, how do you believe it? I don't know, but she left and went and got on a bus. She believed it enough that she actually left from the motel and went and got on a bus to go see her family. <laughs> she must have been convincing. She says, I'm thinking, oh my God, how could I have believed this? And why is she waiting all this time to come to me and tell the truth? I mean, this is over seven years later. This is, oh, let me say that again. This is over seven years later. So this crack is because he wanted to get another sex slave? Yes. And Janice, Janice struggled with feelings of jealousy toward Colleen, but she also had this reward of a lot of the heavier bondage being practiced on Colleen and she was rewarded by getting to have those two daughters and that was something she really wanted and I think that she knew 
that it was never going to stop. Like she'd allowed him to do this very extreme thing. And now he was demanding more. So after going and talking it over with her pastor, they were church going folk. Of course. She decided the right thing to do was to tell Colleen. And Colleen went back to her family in Riverside, California. And Janice stayed with Cameron three months, but he would not kind of behave himself, I think. And I don't know what that means, but after three months, she decided she couldn't take it anymore. And she went to the Red Buff Police Department. I bet they, like, didn't believe her. Well, Al Shamblin, one of the officers that she spoke with initially, says, Janice Hooker was extremely emotional, and she was obviously very, very scared. I was skeptical, you know. If somebody starts telling you about keeping somebody in a wooden box underneath their waterbed for virtually years on end, you're skeptical. And I have to agree with Al. Like, that sounds insane. It is insane. It is. But it sounds like, okay, this woman's had a psychotic break. We're going to need to commit her for 72 hours, and that's going to be that. So what did they do? Did they go and look in the house? Well, they went and arrested him, and they said that he was being arrested for sex crimes and kidnapping and false imprisonment. And Al was like, you know, I kept expecting him to kind of, you know, argue or say, what the hell are you talking about? And he was like, yeah, okay, no problem. God, this guy was screwed up. Oh, oh, yes. But Janice, during the time that she had been with Cameron after Colleen left, had systematically destroyed all of the evidence that she had been in that home. So any photos, like the contract was gone, anything with her name on it, anything like that had been destroyed. So how'd they prove it? Well, Al says, Christine McGuire, prosecutor, and myself were in the office working and going through some of his various <clears throat> magazines. And this negative falls out. Do you know what a negative is? Like for pictures? Pictures. Yes. Yeah. And I picked it up and I held it up to the light. And we discovered that it was a picture that Cameron Hooker had taken of the actual contract that he had Colleen sign. So he had to keep that little memento, that reminder. Mm-hmm. And that's what did a man. Yes. And a neighbor says, when I heard about all that, I like to fall over, said Vilma Woolsey. I just can't believe a thing like that would happen here. You never can. And so in 1985, Cameron was sentenced to 104 years. A judge gave him a maximum sentence because of the cruelty and viciousness of his crimes and said that he had a pattern of conduct that was a serious danger to society. He was convicted for one count kidnapping, seven count rape, seven counts rape and two other sexual violations. Interestingly, Janice was given immunity for her testimony and now lives in California under a different name with her daughters. But she implicated Cameron in the disappearance of Mary Elizabeth Spanake in 1976. So right before all this happened. Yes. And I looked into it a little bit and it seems Like, the circumstantial evidence is very much there, but they've never been able to recover a body. And without any kind of physical evidence, they're unwilling to prosecute, especially because he is still in prison. So it's still unsolved. It remains unsolved. But you can go, if you're a web sleuthy kind of person, and look her up. Um, She's on the Charlie Project um, and a few other sites around the web. And 
this came up and came out in a pronounced way a few years ago when he was up for parole because the Hispanic family does believe that he is responsible for her death. And they were very adamant that they did not want him to be paroled. And he is eligible for parole again in 2022. So that's comforting. So this is a literal case of someone keeping a body under the bed. I mean, it's not a dead body, but it is someone that is hiding a secret under there. Right. And they're Janice and Cameron, in a way, are both hiding the secret life. You know, these secret fetishes and dark urges and things that they know their neighbors and family would not approve of. Right. And while the phrase kind of body under the bed has almost become an idiom. Almost. An even more prevalent idiom that this makes me think of is skeletons in the closet. That one I know. And that can be thought of as lots of ways. You know, the obvious and the one that's used more frequently is that you have a secret to hide. Right. You're concealing something about yourself. You have something that would cost you massively. Like, I'm sure he's got a few skeletons in the closet. Yeah, and this is literally a case where they are hiding not only a body, but the things they're doing. They're hiding their lifestyle. They're hiding their kind of sadistic ways from people. And obviously, he was very good at that. I mean, he had her parents fooled and a very short time back in the day when they first met. So the idea of skeletons in the closet is that allusion to a person or you know sometimes a family having this guilty secret that's just kind of waiting to be uncovered and it's in a closet. It's just like under the bed. It is this ever-present place in your home that is just waiting to be discovered. But because it's in your home, you have the expectation of privacy. Yes, the expectation, but... The threat that it won't be guarded. The threat that the wrong person can open the door is always there. It's always there. And so I was curious to know where this term came from, skeletons in the closet. It's such an odd phrase. Right, because not very many people actually have skeletons in their closet. Well, a few people, maybe, but not 10% of the population. True. And so there's no clear answer to where the phrase comes from. It just rolls off the tongue. But it may have origins with real skeletons in real closets. So as I've talked about before, back in the day, doctors would have to go to extreme lengths to be able to get bodies to dissect. That again? Yeah. And so... Since it was so difficult to find, and since it also was so frowned upon, this was not a secret that you wanted to get out, people would keep parts of the body preserved or keep the skeletons around, and they would keep it hidden away in a place like a closet. And so that general idea that every doctor has got a skeleton in their closet. Every respected member of society has a skeleton in their closet later We've all got skeletons in our closet, even later. Makes sense. See how that could happen. Yeah, it does. It makes sense. There's no clear evidence that's where it comes from. It's just an educated guess. But But. the first written evidence of its use does come from the medical profession. Hmm. William Hendry Stowell, in the UK monthly periodical The Eclectic Review in 1816, used the term skeleton kind of as an idea of hereditary or infectious disease in a family, saying 
Two great sources of distress are the danger of contagion and the apprehension of hereditary disease. The dread of being the cause of misery to posterity has prevailed over men to conceal the skeleton in the closet. So a lot of times that's cited as the initial use of it, but but actually it goes back a year earlier. He was paraphrasing Joseph Adams, who in 1815 wrote a philosophical treatise on the hereditary peculiarities of the human race, which was kind of the first work that kind of set out ideas of genetic inheritance in humans. Blasphemy. And he was discussing like the shame associated with these congenital diseases. This ties in really well with our like Changelings episode. In these, as in many other highly important questions, men seem afraid of inquiring after truth. Cautions on cautions are multiplied to conceal the skeleton in the closet or to prevent its escape till our very fears bring the object constantly before us. Not in its real form, but multiplied into every possible shape and magnified in all. That's a more powerful metaphor because the skeleton is the fear. The fear is death. Like we've talked about seeing a skull, you know it's dead. You know, there's no like, well, maybe they lost an arm and went on about their way. Full skeleton, you're dead. So confronting death, you're trying to keep the death, the threat. But also shame as well. So both. Because, the, you know, these congenital diseases are frequently deadly. Mm-hmm. But also, as we talked about in the Changelings episode, it was a source of shame in a way. Well, yeah, like um, going back to the buggery business, the idea that congenital diseases or deformities or things like that could be caused from buggering a pig or whatever. It was not something that there was a great scientific understanding of. And one thing I was thinking as you were reading this, one hereditary disease that was identified pretty early on in the annals of medicine was hemophilia. True. And that was associated with the royal family. Yes. And so it was sort of an open secret. Like, remember when we were talking about the Romanovs, they tried very hard to hide the fact that Alexei had hemophilia. They did not want the public to know about it. And the sailor nannies. He had sailor nannies. And so you see that, like, it undermines power. And so they're keeping a deadly secret locked away inside their home. Right. And then this, you know, later, especially in fiction, does come to be used. I mean, of course, as a secret, as something shameful, which could be of any sort that brings shame upon the family, but also to actual dead bodies and skeletons. And some people say, like, you can look at the fairy tale of Bluebeard. Oh, he had lots of skeletons. And he had bodies in his basement. Very gacy, that one. And then you can look at like several Edgar Allan Poe stories. Telltale Heart comes to mind. Black Cat, Casca Montiago, <laughs> et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And one of the first uses of it in fiction was in 1845 by Victorian author William Makepeace Thackeray, oh, and he referred to a skeleton in every house and a in something he wrote in 1845, and explicitly to skeletons in closets. In the Newcomb's Memoirs of a Most Respectable Family, he was stating that some particulars regarding the Newcomb family, which will show us that they have a skeleton or two in their closets, as well as their neighbors. Scandalous. But also we talk about that idea of the home, the home being a safe place, somewhere you can hide something. 
and two of the more common places that you would hide something being under the bed in the closet. And as we are wont to do. Are you going to tell me what Freud says? What's Freud say? What's Freud say? Tell me. If you look at Freud's semantic extrapolations in his essay, The Uncanny, there's a potential to view something like the closet or under the bed, this hiding place, as a particularly acute definition of the uncanny. And we discussed ideas of the uncanny in uh, the Slipmouth Woman episode. We're like referencing all the episodes. All of our longtime listeners, you got this. And so he says that there's this haunting otherness, which is concealed at the heart of the private domain. Like Narnia? No. Like dead bodies. Oh. Like Gacy. Fine. So in literature, the bed is a symbol for marriage itself. You'll oftentimes hear the words marriage bed used together to mean like the sex act or coupling. And it is seen as sort of a symbol of man and wife. Symbol of the family or the home. Right. That primary unit, the adult sphere of the home. So it's easy to look at those ideas and see how they apply to the first story we talked about, you know, they're using this marriage bed as a hiding place for their skeletons, for the things they don't want people to know, for the literal body and person that they have kidnapped and tortured and manipulated and have hidden within their domestic sphere. It's the literal foundation of their marriage. If you want to get super symbolic. But that's a live person. And we were talking about dead bodies. And so far, we've only had dead bodies in hotels where the anonymity is greater. So I think that begs the question. Have people kept dead bodies in their home? Let me tell you about Dixie. Dixie? Oh, yes. So Dixie Schreiber was born in Muscatine, Iowa in 1967. Her mother married a man named Frank Street in 1976 and he began sexually abusing Dixie and her sisters. That was a good lighthearted episode. I'm glad we did this. Yeah, me too. It's just so upbeat. I told you nothing was going to be ha-ha funny. So she began dating a man named Scott Shanahan in 1983. And in 1984, she threatened to report Street to the police. And so she followed that up by leaving her family and moving to Defiance, Iowa, to live with Al and Beverly Fazer, who were the parents of Scott Shanahan. She defied them and moved to Defiance? Yeah, I know. Just clarifying. Yep. Dixie moved to Defiance. It just, it sounds like a country song. Scott lived with Al, Beverly, and Dixie as well. So she's young. She's moved in with her boyfriend and his elderly parents. I don't know if they were elderly, but they were ill. And she actually took care of Al and Beverly and formed a close bond with Beverly. She said that she was closer to her than her own mother. And Dixie claims that minor abuses by Scott began at this time, but he was not only abusing her, but abusing his mother. So in 1986, Dixie received the first major beating for visiting her family, which she'd not done since she moved in with Scott two years earlier. So again, we have somebody that's kind of breaking those chains a little bit. And whenever they have that little bit of freedom, get this major consequence. Yeah, it's abominable. And That is a pattern of abusers. It's something we probably should mention. Isolation of a victim is incredibly important to abusive relationships. And that doesn't 
always mean sticking someone in a box under your bed. That could be psychological as well. And in 1988, Beverly was severely beaten after she attended a funeral for her brother-in-law and came home with pneumonia. And around the time that she was recovering from this, she extracted a promise from Dixie that if anything happened to her, Dixie would take care of Scott. A promise that Dixie took seriously, given the closeness of her relationship with Beverly. During that same period of time, Dixie estimates that Scott was beating both her and Beverly about twice a week. So he had manipulated not only his girlfriend and his mom. Yes. uh, Again, you see that power and control. If one is good, two are better. We saw with Cameron Hooker. So in 1994, Beverly dies. And this causes Scott to go apeshit. And he starts beating Dixie more frequently and with more severity. However, in 1995, Dixie and Scott marry. And in 1996, Zachary, their first child, is born. And in 1998, their second child, Ashley, is born. But Dixie left once in 1997. And this is presumably because he beat her trying to end her second pregnancy. He was hitting her in the stomach. But she felt very guilty about leaving. She said, I promised I'd take care of him and I felt I wasn't doing that for her. Beverly. Dixie also worried about her children growing up without a father. Each time she left, Scott would call Dixie and her family and her friends relentlessly, asking her to come back and her friends to urge her to do so. He promised to change, to get counseling, to do whatever it took to keep our marriage together, she says. And each time Scott would change for a few months, he would go to counseling, he would take his medication, but the beatings always resumed, becoming more severe, causing more serious injuries. So after that, 1997 separation his treatment of her became more abhorrent he threw her down the stairs and broke her teeth he tried to drown her in a toilet bowl while the kids watched he beat her on the head with a cowboy boot he poked her in the eye until she began to bleed he tied her up in the basement three different times for up to two days at a time telling her you know i could let you sit down here and die and nobody would know the difference And Dixie did reach out to law enforcement three different times. Good for her. So the first time was in May of 97. And after that, Scott pled guilty to domestic abuse assault. And he was sentenced to 30 days in jail. But he was given time served for all but two days. In September of 1997, she made another report. And she said that he beat her in the head and about the body with a metal object and caused her to bleed from her ears. She told police that she was pregnant and she was afraid that Scott would cause her to lose the baby. So again, Scott pled guilty to domestic abuse assault and was sentenced to two years with all but four days suspended. And then on October 9th of 2000, friends of Dixie's tried to enter her home, but Scott wouldn't let them in. He put Dixie and her children in a closet and held the door closed. So the friends called the police. Deputies used a hidden key to enter the home and arrest Scott. They saw that Dixie had two black eyes and that there was a hole in the door that Scott had made with her head. Deputies arrested Scott and charged him with false imprisonment and felony domestic abuse assault with injury. Then Dixie went to Texas to stay with family. Run away to Texas. All the cool kids are doing it. So she stayed there until April of 2001. Scott continually contacted her, violating the no contact order in place after his arrest, but no legal action was taken. She says Scott Scott begged her to come back and threatened to kill himself. Scott finally went to Texas to convince Dixie that he could be a good husband and to tell her that he had hepatitis A and was going to die. 
Dixie refused to return to defiance. Unlikely. High drama situation. Dixie refused to return to defiance and testify against Scott. So the charges against him were dismissed. But after Scott's repeated entreaties, Dixie later returned to defiance. So in August 2002, Dixie learned that she was pregnant with a third child. Scott demanded that she terminate the pregnancy. And when she refused, he became enraged. On August 30th, he was angry because Dixie had failed to wake him up before their son Zachary left for school. Scott began beating Dixie's stomach, screaming, I'm going to kill this baby one way or another, while their daughter Ashley watched. So Dixie sent Ashley to stay with friends, and she wanted to leave too, but Scott took her keys. Then he pointed a loaded shotgun at her and said, This day is not over yet. I will kill you. He also removed all phones from their jacks and brought them into the bedroom with him. The only working phone was now in the bedroom. Dixie decided she needed to call police and went to the bedroom and attempted to use the phone. And as she tried to grab the phone, Scott moved toward her. Seeing the shotgun near the phone, Dixie grabbed it, closed her eyes, and shot Scott. Dixie testified that she believed Scott was coming for her again and that she had no other choice, that the only way to protect herself and her unborn child was to shoot Scott Shanahan. She then sat in the chair outside the bedroom for a few hours, wondering what she was going to do. Ultimately, she put the gun in the closet in the children's bedroom, shut the door to the bedroom where Scott lay dead on the bed, and put a towel underneath the door, and went back to the chair, where she sat until her daughter came home that afternoon. She never told anyone that Scott was in the bedroom, where he remained until the police searched their home on October 20th of 2003. So he stayed in their home, in their bed, where he was shot for over a year. And she and the children continued to live there. And at the time that police came into the home to search it, she had been seeing another man. And they actually married before she went to trial or during the trial. I'm not sure exactly when. But yeah, that was an active home. They they all just lived there. So someone that literally has a skeleton in their closet or bedroom. Yeah. Guns in the closet. Guns in the closet. Kids closet. I know. I thought the same thing. I was like, that's not safe. So this is a classic case of something that in the medical and in the legal community is called battered woman's syndrome. Now it's been updated to be called battered person syndrome, and that's a more accurate statement. But the initial research and everything, it was called battered woman syndrome. Probably what I'll say most of the time. So this is something that occurs in abused people. And so it's important to point out that the CDC states that more than one in four women and more than one in 10 men have experienced contact, sexual violence, physical violence, or stalking by an intimate partner and reported significant short or long-term impacts related to this, such as things like post-traumatic stress disorder. And that is a shocking statistic to me. I'm not shocked. I know a lot of women and I am doing the math and yeah i guess it's just my optimism (laughs) the thing is that whenever people go through experiences like this like the two incidents we've talked about previously they're more likely to experience other problems as well so things like ptsd like symptoms but also other physical or mental health issues And the Bureau of Justice states that every day in the United States, more than three women and one man are murdered by their intimate partners on average. In 2000, 1,247 women and 440 men were killed by an intimate partner. 
30% of all women and 5% of all murders of men were intimate partner homicides. Behave. And so the idea of battered person syndrome, or battered woman syndrome, first rose to prominence in the 1970s, where it was used as a legal defense for abused women who murdered their husbands in a premeditated fashion. The defense lawyers used the syndrome to explain premeditation as follows. The woman could not leave the relationship due to something called learned helplessness, nor could they fight back when actually being attacked. In the face of increasing violence, the woman's belief was that the only way she could protect herself and her children was to eliminate the partner when he was more vulnerable, for example, while sleeping. And I think that that is what happened with Dixie. Like, she says he lunged toward her, but forensic examination of the scene indicated that he was resting on his back when he was shot. I think it could have been as simple as him stirring, like moving a leg, and knowing that if he saw her trying to reach for the phone and that loaded shotgun was there. There was only one result, especially in her mind. So the phrase battered woman syndrome was coined by Dr. Lenore Walker. She's also known as the mother of battered woman syndrome. Can we come up with a better title for her? Let's call her the empathy goddess. Anything is better. So her major study was of 400 battered women and involved a team of researchers who conducted six to eight hour interviews with the women using open and closed questions. And she described a battered woman as any woman 18 years of age and older who is or has been in an intimate relationship with a man who repeatedly subjects or subjected her to forceful physical and or psychological abuse. So there are two main factors to this. One is a cycle theory of violence. And this, this cycles and has three stages. So you have that tension building stage. We have these minor abusive incidents, such emotional threats, verbal outbursts, possibly some minor physical abuse. And this causes the woman to be hypervigilant and to change her behavior and change her ways in order to, in her mind, help avoid these situations. Right, because one of the hallmarks of these types of relationship is that the partner inflicting the violence generally does not accept responsibility for their behavior. Generally, it is overtly blamed on the partner who is being abused. Right, and then the next step is this acute battering stage where it's more severe. You know, you're really severe abusive behavior. And then the third stage is a loving contrition when the partner's more remorseful and charming, promises that. They'll never do this again. And this is kind of a general idea of kind of like why the woman won't leave. You know, this keeps happening. Right. And Laura Richards is one of the hosts on Real Crime Profile. And she has done a lot of work with Paladin that we mentioned at the top of the show. And a lot of research on intimate partner violence and stalking. And one thing she always says that I really wish people could understand is women don't want these relationships to end. They want the abuse to end. They want the relationship without the abuse because they do love their partners. No, and that's so true. And you know, you can argue all day long about what that love means and if it's related to manipulation and some of it is, mm-hmm. you know, without a doubt. But there are other factors there, you know, and each situation's different. I mean, you can look at these 
stories we've talked about already. You know, you have with Janice Hooker, she's manipulated into this and she is having these abusive incidents occur. But then he's like, oh, wait, let's have a baby. Oh, wait, I'm doing this for us. Mm-hmm. And she sees that perfect partner that could be there are with Dixie. Right. She leaves and he comes and tells her that he's going to change. And he does for brief periods of time, which is absolutely maddening, I'm sure. But that's that cycle. It's right. a cycle. It's not these three steps happen and then you're done. Right. It starts over again. And so, you know, she mentions that he will go on his medication. He'll go to counseling. He'll seek help for brief periods of time. But the behavior continually reverts to being tense or outright abusive over and over again. And she also has that relationship with his mom where she promised to take care of him and look after him. And she does take on more of a maternal role in that way with him. Like she feels a responsibility for his behavior, wants to fix it. And she is a survivor of previous abuse, which is a common feature in women who are in long-term relationships where there is intimate partner violence. A lot of times they experienced violence when they were younger or were abused in other ways by family members or close acquaintances. Right. And that really plays into the other big component of battered woman syndrome. And that is the hot topic phrase related to it called learned helplessness. Who are you calling helpless? Exactly. So this idea was pioneered by Martin Seligman. And in his graduate days, he was working in a lab that was looking at Pavlovian responses in dogs. And they were looking at aversive conditioning and avoidance learning. So he has this now famous theory, which kind of started this learned helplessness idea. And in it, he took dogs and he put them in a harness and had holes where the dog's legs could dangle free. And as the dog hung there, their heads were kept in place by two panels, which they could easily press with their heads. At random intervals, coming between 60 and 90 seconds apart, they would receive a series of shocks to their hind feet. Oh, the ASPCA is not going to be happy about this. When some of the dogs could control these shocks with a simple press of their head against either of the panels so they could learn how to stop it. Mm. But others, whenever they pressed their head on the panels, had no results. So the next day, the dogs were put in a cage and it was kind of separated into two rooms by a little barrier. And half of the room on one side of the barrier was electrified and the other half was not. And so in order to escape these electrocutions, the dogs could jump over the barrier and they saw this consistent pattern. The dogs that had learned to avoid the shocks by pressing their heads against the panels on the first day were very quick to jump the barrier on the next day. They learned that they could do something about these shocks and saw the easy way out. So every single one of those dogs learned to jump over the barrier. The first dogs try. who could stop the shock by pressing their head on the panel. Exactly. Okay. Those that had been unable to escape the shocks, though, were not even trying. They had learned helplessness. So they would just stand there and get electrocuted rather than trying to get away because they were in a situation where they couldn't escape that feeling previously. Right. And this idea had a lot of resonance. It was kind of motivational. You didn't have to try. It was emotional. You kind of whimper and grow resigned to this fact. And it was cognitive. You generalize one experience to apply to a broader 
existence. And so they went on to show these effects in lots of different animals. And of course, college sophomores, of course, Stephen Pinker's favorite test subject. You got to get those extra points. So this makes me think of the company with Colleen, where because she had experienced severe trauma and couldn't get out of it, when the idea of a larger scale operation with the same agenda was introduced, she was more easily able to accept it than if you just went up to a random person on the street who was buying a coffee and said, hey, the company's watching you. They'd be like, what the fuck? They'd be like, that person's crazy. Moving on, this is not decaf. So Walker took this situation and applied it to women, saying that over time, women's motivation to respond to these acts of violence would diminish and that they would not see any easy way out. Right, and those easy ways would be like, just leave him. Which is everyone's favorite thing to say. Mm-hmm. And so there are a lot of critiques of these ideas, and we'll kind of talk about a few throughout the episode. One, one thing is that feminists hate this idea. I'm a feminist, and I think there's a lot of validity to what he said. Well, Tell so, me why they don't agree with him. Well, Ann Coughlin wrote a paper, and she was saying that this paints women as irrational sufferers of mental health disorders incapable of self-control. It infers that they're incapable of choosing a lawful response. It suggests that its use as a legal defense supports gender hierarchy within marriage and court systems, and using it holds men and women to different standards, and that women do not have the same capacity for self-governance as men. Oh, oh, Anne, how is the ivory tower weather? How is that for you? It must be nice. Okay, um, so I really have a huge set of issues with that. Um, so send your hate mail with a clearly labeled subject line that says feminist rant, and I will get right back to you. Um, this is not about gender as far as mental capacity goes. This is not saying that women are stupider. It's saying that men are bigger and that they can cause more physical harm to women who often find themselves like it is it's taking the model of a heterosexual relationship and extrapolating like the idea of imminent threat. Women are very seldom the ones posing an imminent threat. That's just true. I mean, the numbers support that one in four, one in ten. When there is a real threat of danger, I think a lot of theoretical feminism can jump out a window because this does not take into account the fact that this patriarchal system is in fact embedded in every fiber of our life. Like it, if you want to remove that and give everyone an even playing field, great, but it doesn't exist yet. And working within the system, it's stacked against women. And that is what a lot of feminist writers come back to time and time again is how things are stacked against you. You can't say that this critique is invalid when this system and structure exist. You can say it's unfair, and it is, but you can't say that what these women are responding to, what they are reacting to, undermines your ideal movie heroine and doesn't present a good role model for young women. This is not the Gina Davis project. Theoretically, yes. Women would all have equal resources. They would have access to vehicles to drive away from their abusers. They would all have a cell phone. They would all have an escape plan. Economic resources to be able to actually leave a partner. They would have... A place to go. They would have 
no worries that their children were going to be used against them. Not have history of physical, sexual, psychological abuse that primes them for this. Yeah. In an ideal world, if someone was treating you badly, you would just collect yourself, stand up, make an eloquent speech, and exit. Like a movie. But it's not like that. Because it's not just a story. No. And that's what she's, re- that's what she's critiquing. She doesn't like the story. Tough shit. It's a real story. And my big issue with it is that not every person that experiences intimate partner violence has battered woman syndrome or battered person syndrome. Just like every soldier does not have PTSD. It is a select few. And so that's from a medical standpoint. Right. And I don't like the narrative of PTSD for soldiers because it undermines their heroism and their sacrifice to this country. Right. It's like saying they're not as strong because of it. And it's ridiculous. That's completely false. And another thing ha- that bugs me is from a legal standpoint is that this is used like any other mental disorder. And you can use that as a reason for things. You know, and it's used as a way to illustrate the situation that these people get into. This is a way to understand it because yes. And Dr. Walker has gone back and said, yeah, you know, there are of course other ways to look at this other forms of the cycle, but it's just a general concept. It's something you can present to a jury that will resonate with them that will allow them to feel empathy for this person who has been through a very difficult situation most of us are not faced with. It's a way to relate the story to everyone and show them how you can go from being a soccer mom to shooting your husband. Yeah, so you'll have people say, oh yes, but I did research and I found all these coping mechanisms that women have. They will go to their clergy they will go to the police they will go to family members they will do things to try to mitigate the violence and it's like that's not what it's saying it's not saying that women don't try to do those things and some women do do those things successfully and that's important to highlight this is not the end result of every case of intimate partner violence as you were saying some women are able to find functional avenues that allow them to leave their marriages. And that is the ideal scenario. I'm in no way advocating that this is a reasonable end or a desirable outcome. However, you cannot negate the validity of this research and and of the syndrome because you don't like what it says. Right. Well, you can look at like the case of Dixie and she went to the police. Three times. She had him arrested. Multiple times. He served six days in jail total. Time served. And she did not want to return and testify against him. She was trying to move on with her life, which he did not allow her to do. But she was trying to move on. She did not want to return and testify against him. And that let the more serious set of charges just drop because she would not appear in a court. But she did not ignore that option. She also left... And when sought help from family twice, that critique rejects the idea that these abusers can be very persistent and very manipulative. I was going to say, it rejects the the psychological aspect of it. It's like, just get your ass up and go. No, no. Even taking 
every other factor like we talked about, all the economic, physical, et cetera, reasons, like there's the psychological aspect. And that's what this is referencing. So the thing about Dixie's case is if she had not kept Scott's body in a bedroom in her home while she and her children continued to live in that home, it probably would pass as just another case of a woman who's been the victim of abuse murdering her abuser. Right, because a large percentage of incarcerated women that are in prison for killing an intimate partner who abused them. Women charged in the death of a mate have the least extensive criminal records of any female offenders. Sue Ostoff, who's represented more than 350 women who've killed their abusers, says, I've only met one woman who wanted to kill her husband. Battered women don't want to do it, and they won't do it if they don't absolutely have to. So when those coping strategies fail, whenever they're not able to get out, when the violence keeps increasing, when the injuries become more severe, that's whenever these things occur. Right, and there are a series of events that usually lead up to a homicide. And it's an increased frequency of abuse, an increased severity of injuries, the frequency of forced sexual acts or threats of such, uh, the man using drugs and alcohol more often, increase in a partner's threats to kill them, increase in the victim's threats of suicide, or, I thought this was interesting, a partner killing pets. Battered women who kill frequently report the destruction of their pets. These women believe that the murder of a pet represents their own imminent death. It makes sense. It's like a, a crossing a line. Mm-hmm. You know? And Angela Brown, who's written extensively on the subject, says that women's behaviors seem to be primarily a reaction to the level of threat of violence coming in. Women in the homicide group reported that they felt hopelessly trapped in a desperate situation in which staying with the possibility of being killed, but attempting to leave also carried with it the threat of reprisal of death. Their sense of helplessness and desperation escalated along with their assaultive behavior of their partners. And this plays into what Brown defines as a latitude of acceptance. And she uses social judgment theory and explains it like this. A latitude of acceptance defines what a battered woman believes that she can live through. The parameters of that latitude constantly shift to assimilate the attacks that they previously would not have believed that they could survive. When acts occur that a woman perceives as significantly outside the normal range of violence, a change in the pattern of violence or more brutal behavior, or that is beyond the range of what they can assimilate, like child abuse, that contrast phenomena indicates to the women that their deaths are imminent. At the moment, their final hope has been removed. They did not believe they could escape the abusive situation and survive. And now they can no longer survive within it either. Right. Lenore Walker stated that defending oneself from reasonably perceived imminent danger of bodily harm or death ought to be considered a psychologically healthy response. I don't know if that's necessarily true, but I understand what she's saying. She's saying that in this psychological miasma that exists it's like what else can you do you know usually this homicides are unplanned often occurs while they're being abused or while they're trying to escape or while they're being threatened that imminent danger is there however there are cases as you were talking about earlier where they wait until 
there's an opportunity. These are considered delayed responses or delayed homicides. So according to Brown, these delayed homicides were often related to explicit threat by an abuser to get the woman or a child within a specific period of time. Women killed their abuser to avert the threatened outcome. So with Dixie, you see that when Scott says to her, the day's not over, I'll still kill you, or however he phrases it. And so she thinks, I have until the end of the day to do something about this. But in this case that we talked about with Dixie, she keeps the body in her home, and that is an oddity. That's an outlier. Right. And I think that that has to do with something that Angela Brown describes. She says, the abuser's power over a battered woman who kills may be so great that the woman continues to believe that the abuser is dangerous even after he is dead and takes measures to protect herself. One woman locked her husband's body in the closet after she shot him. As long as she could see him, she was afraid that he was going to reach out and grab her. And that threat was still there. Absolutely. And Lenore Walker states that even after a homicide, denial... And the battered woman's belief in the omniscience of her batterer served to deaden death's effect. So in case any of you were curious as to how this played out with Dixie using the abuse in court to defend herself, she was found guilty of second degree murder and sentenced to 50 years in prison as a result of mandatory sentencing minimums. However, she was pardoned eventually by the governor of Kansas and is now out of jail. She did serve over 10 years. And one of the jurors said, I thought the most she would get was eight and she would be up for parole after two, or I never would have done it. And so it raised some really interesting questions. And I think that one of the things that made the jury feel as if though they had to convict was the seemingly callous action of keeping that body in that bedroom with the towel stuffed under the door. But they didn't understand the threat was still there. No. And I think that for the first time, she might have felt that she had a little bit of control, you know, by keeping it there, having it in her home, knowing where it was, knowing where the body was, not like putting it out into the world or trying to move a man who was much bigger than she was by herself or clean up a crime scene by just keeping the door closed and pretending everything was okay, which she'd been doing for 19 years. You know, she's very good at keeping a brave face at this point. She was allowed some feeling of control. So our next story definitely shows that. And this story actually starts with a death. On August 31st of 1993, New York Times obituary says Dorian Corey is dead, a drag film star, 56. Dorian Corey, a star of the documentary Paris is Burning, the award-winning film about female impersonators, died on Sunday at Columbia Presbyterian Medical Center in Manhattan. He was 56 and lived in Manhattan. The cause was AIDS, said Jenny Livingston, the director of the 1991 film. So Dorian Corey grew up in Buffalo. He moved to New York City and studied at Parsons School of Design. He then toured the United States in the 1960s in the Pearl Box Review, a cabaret drag act. He performed regularly at Sally's Hideaway and at Sally's 2 on West 43rd Street, and he also had a clothing business, Corey Design. Now, Dorian Corey was, at the time, referred to as a drag queen. And honey, he was. He was a queen, all of it. 
It's it's important to point out just like a little side note that this is all reported in the nineties when ideas of transgender and drag queens were just like all one big thing. And he referred to himself as a drag queen. Different articles and things will be quoting referred to him as he and she. Dorian Corey specifically stated on the Jones Rivers show that he didn't care. Which pronoun. Which pronoun he used. So I'm just going to kind of go with whatever the reporter said. Because the most important part about pronouns is what they want to be called. In reading about it, I think he was most likely male to female transgender. Mm-hmm. But at a time when that expression really wasn't available. Yeah, So, but that's really just reading into a lot of things I read about him. But we're just going to go with pronouns he used since he didn't give a shit because he was awesome. <laughs> Let's just take a moment to revel in these this one moment of like up happy glory that we're going to get when we talk about the film Paris is Burning. Paris is Burning is about as much fun as one can have on YouTube. It is a film about Hispanic and black drag queens, female impersonators and transgender people and kind of the gay scene that was happening in Harlem and around New York City. Uh, in the late 80s and early 90s. Right, and it was looking specifically at the ball culture. So, a film review of Paris is Burning was titled, Aching to be a prima donna when you're a man. That's from the New York Times. Oh, the paper of record. So they say, if you're black and male and gay, you have to be stronger than you can imagine, one ball competitor said. And I'm going to say, true. At this time, absolutely. And so in the review, they kind of talk about the movie, and I highly recommend you go watch it because it is enlightening and extremely entertaining. Some great personalities who actually have a lot of wisdom. They really do, especially Dorian Corey. So in the review, they said, style is the weapon of these self-styled queens, their consorts and their entourages. Style is all pervasive in speech, vocabulary, manner, dress, and attitude. Style is a way of appearing to be real. That is, a way of appearing to be something that is often apparent one isn't. Drag comes in all sizes, shapes, and of course, styles. The competitions for prizes, that's at the balls, is fierce in categories that go far beyond femme queen realness, featuring the elaborate showgirl costumes that one usually associates with drag balls. They have the town and country division, where contestants dress as upper middle class men and women, as they might appear in the magazine of that name. Other categories include executive realness, so like look, trying to look like Wall Street, military, schoolboy, schoolgirl, or banshee realness. Banshee contestants adopt the look and manner of young street punks whose favorite targets are the sort of gay men who walk the ball. That is to say, compete for prizes. Okay, so these balls were highly organized and highly competitive at this time. And they had come out of a culture in the 60s where there was like one ball every year in Harlem. But now there are enough people who are expressing interest that they've not only escalated in frequency, but they have diversified to be all inclusive and to allow opportunities for everyone to be everything that they ever wanted to be. And it was a way for them to be anything they wanted to be. You know, Dorian Corey talks about in the film that this was a way that it doesn't matter if you're black, it doesn't matter if you're gay, you could be an executive. You could dress that way. It doesn't matter if you're a guy, 
you could be this extremely fantastic drag queen. Oh, and he was. Oh, he was. And he really became famous, along with a few other drag queens, from this movie because the movie was a massive hit for the time and for what it was about. It wasn't shown in uh, all the little theaters in little country towns. No, but it did re-air on HBO copiously, apparently, because when I searched Dorian Corey's names in the newspaper archives, I got like a bajillion TV listings. <laughs> Before we move on, I just want to point out that there was an extreme attention to detail in every category. When discussing executive realness, for example... They would talk about how your suit had to be right, your haircut had to be right, your shoes had to be right, and you need a briefcase. But you didn't only need a briefcase, you needed to have your briefcase full of things you would actually use if you were, in fact, a Wall Street executive. It was persnickety as hell and amazing, and I love it. I love it, I love it. A few choice things that they talk about in the documentary and that Dorian Corey extrapolates on one being the houses. This is a quote. A house is a gay street gang. A gay house street fights at a ball. They call them competitions, but they are wars. And they often do lead to fights. Emotions are very high. I guess that's what makes them fun. So he was a mentor and supported a lot of younger drag queens and transsexual people. And he had his own family, the House of Corey, saying, You lend money to your friends not very much money and give advice. Sometimes if someone got evicted or whatever, you might take them in. That's from the Joan Rivers show. Also on YouTube. Also go watch. Pause. Go watch all this amazingness after talking about all this other terribleness. Oh, this is such a good palate cleanser. So Dorian Corey, for all her other accomplishments and the wonders that she brought to our world might also be, the mother of the phrase, throw in shade, which is amazing. So she describes shade. Shade comes from reading. Reading is the real art form of insult. You get in a smart crack and everyone laughs and kikis because they've, you found a flaw and exaggerated it. And then you've got a good read going. But when you're on the same thing, then you have to go to fine points. In other words, if I'm a black queen and you're a black queen, then we can't call each other black queens. That's not a read. That's just a fact. Then we talk about your ridiculous shape or your saggy face or your tacky clothes. Shade is, I don't have to tell you you're ugly, but I don't have to tell you because you know you're ugly. And that they also talk about how like Madonna stole the Vogue idea from drag queens and things like that. They don't say that, but it's not hard to read. You got a read going? I got a read going. You see Ooh. her shade? Madonna's saggy face. <laughs> her tacky clothes. I love her tacky clothes. So Doreen also says, I come from the old school big costumes, feathers, and beads, and they don't have that anymore. It's not about what you create, but what you acquire. Because he was this amazing designer. He went to Parsons. Mm-hmm. With Tim Gunn. Uh, I don't know if that's true or not. And people sought him out to design costumes. And that's how he made his money. He also said, when I grew up, you wanted to look like Marlene Dietrich or Betty Grable. Fortunately, I didn't know that I really wanted to look like Lena Horne. When I grew up, black stars were stigmatized. 
Nobody wanted to look like Lena Horn. And he also goes on to say in an interview for the New York Times, I didn't do it for the money. I did it for the fun. Always have. You see, I was in show business for years. So when my 15 minutes finally came, it was gravy. And so he was this just amazing personality. Larger than life. So like the wisdom just comes out of his pores. It's amazing to see what Dorian puts together as far as costumes and makeup and just the attitude and the presence that comes with the showmanship that is just innate in his being. He's an absolute party to watch. And you may say, why the hell are we talking about this? Well, you don't like fun. You don't like fun. And also, I'm going to keep going and spoil the fun. An AP article reported, Deceased drag show star leaves mummy mystery behind in closet. Beg your pardon? When famed drag queen Dorian Corey died earlier this year, he didn't leave any skeletons in the closet. He did, however, leave wigs, sequin dresses, feather boas, and the mummified body of a slaying victim. That sentence is true in this world, and the we don't all know it is a crime. A crime. A crime against journalism. Well, it is true, and there's... Lots of great reporting on the AP, but the best reporting was from a New York Magazine article called The Drag Queen Had a Mummy in Her Closet. And so in it, they describe the events. So Lois Taylor, a fellow drag queen, was an old friend of Dorian's. She took care of Dorian during the last three years of her life while she was dying of AIDS. Now, after Dorian died, Lois started selling off her costumes, saying, Child, it was what Dorian told me to do take the costumes I wanted, and sell the rest. So one morning, on October 19th, Lois came to meet her customers at Dorian Corey's fourth floor apartment. They made their way through clutter that covered every foot of the apartment to the small back room that held Dorian's legendary costumes. In the back of the room was a long green plaid hanging bag from the 60s. Lois couldn't lift it, so it grabbed a pair of scissors and told one of the customers to Quote, cut it. As soon as he did, a horrible stink came out of the dusty fabric bag. Lois said, that's what we called the police, because honey, I wasn't chancing it. Smart, Lois. So New York Newsday headline was, no trick or treat, just a mummy in a suitcase, because this came out around Halloween. Because of course it did. It was actually straight people um, wanting to buy Halloween costumes. Of course it was. So in it, they described a partially mummified body found in a suitcase in Harlem. Body was that of a man wearing ragged boxer shorts and one sleeve of a t-shirt. He'd been shot in the head. But that was it. There wasn't any other details in that article. So the reason this comes out is that Richard Johnson, this gossip columnist, starts hearing the rumors. And he starts making the connection between the mummified body and our famed drag queen, Dorian Corey. And he ran the story in the New York Post, page six. Of course he did. Not the paper of record. Saying some of his friends had come across a body in a trunk wrapped in saran wrap and packed in baking soda. Is that true? No. Okay. Police told him the body could have been in storage anywhere from seven months to 20 years. Okay, well that's a range. Corey's friends had told the writer that a note was left saying, this poor man broke into my home and was trying to rob me. Well, what did this poor man expect? Is that true? Not really. Okay. 
So there was a diary recovered from Corey's apartment that did not contain any confession or any clues, one of the officers said. Still, there was a rumor circulating in the community pointing to Corey. He supposedly left a note explaining he killed the man in self-defense during a break-in, said Chi-Chi Valenti, the producer of Jackie 60 and an underground club where Corey often performed. Now, police soon figured out who this guy was and that he had died from a gunshot to the back of the head. The body was dried and shriveled. Oh, I know what they did. What? They probably cut off his fingertips and resaturated them and then got fingerprints. Kind of. Oh, okay. Yeah. So they did. They loosened the skin, got fingerprints, and they identified him as real name Robert Worley, and he went by the alias Bobby Wells. It's always good when a person has an alias. That's a good sign. It's a good sign, good character references. The more aliases a person has, the more quickly one should invite them into their home. Toot sweet. Well, so Mr. Wells was last seen by his family in 1968. No. No. He had a trouble with the law and had had one arrest for raping and assaulting a woman in 1963. So he did go to Sing Sing for it and was released in 1966. Let's talk about sentencing minimums. Let's talk about 50 years for shooting your abusive husband and three years for raping and assaulting a woman. Let's talk about it. Hold your feminist horses. Uh, Nay. Indignant nay. Okay, so he's released in 1966. And then what does Bobby Worley get up to? So after a little bit, he visits his brother, Fred Worley, and stays with him for a little while. And Fred Worley described this time as he used to drink vodka straight from the bottle. It was an everyday thing. And he disappeared after three months. And when being questioned if they thought he might have had a relationship with somebody, his brother said, I think they had a relationship, he and this transvestite. Classy. I didn't know this was in him until one night when he was living with me. He was obviously stewed. He called our house well after midnight thinking he was calling his transvestite friend. And he talked and talked. And I listened. Oh, Fred. Oh, Fred. Oh, Fred. You just sat there and listened to your drunk brother. Wouldn't you? Yes. But Fred. So also asking if this guy possibly could have been abusive in any way. He said, I think he was pretty macho. Yeah. I'm pretty sure that he acted out his violence with her, but I have no firsthand knowledge. And the reporter says, maybe he went too far once. He said, that could be. That very well could be. So there were a lot of rumors going around that it could have been a burglary gone wrong, but that Dorian had had a relationship with Bobby Wells and that Bobby Wells was very abusive and that abuse ended in the gunshot. Now there's not a lot of evidence for this. It's all circumstantial. But New York journalists asked other drag queens if they'd ever heard Dorian talk about Bobby. And they all said no. And so are there any rumors, any theories? And they said, well... He probably abused her, a date, or some guy she was stuck on. This happens a lot, honey. A lot of bodies and bags in the back of fabulous closets are the abuse. The abuse. I was hoping the bodies. Okay, fine. And, you know, as is today, but even more in 1993, and even more in the late 60s, early 70s, 
the amount of violence towards transsexual people is unbelievable. So I was reading a report from 2009 that just kind of incorporates all the United States statistics about violence against the transgender community and transgender people. And within this report, there was a section on police and other authorities. And it states that within the transgender community, it's common knowledge that interacting with authorities invites a certain level of possible victimization or re-victimization for transgender people. Only two studies directly ask about reporting sexual assaults to the police. One found that 83% of victims of sexual assault did not report any incidences of that to the police. Another report found a similar statistic that only 9% of victims reported their sexual assaults to police. And that same report found that 47.5% of all victims did not tell anyone about their sexual assault. In summary, the studies conducted have shown that transgender people are the victims of a great deal of sexual violence, specifically sexual assault, attempted sexual assault, rape, and attempted rape. In addition to this violence, is often perpetrated specifically because of their gender identity or expression, perhaps most painful, in only about a third of the cases is the perpetrator a complete stranger, suggesting that a large volume of sexual victimization of transgender people is at the hands of people they know, and that this victimization begins at an early age. And that's so true. And even in the documentary, Dorian says that you're having a good day if you get home with all your clothes on and no blood. And so Reg Flowers, who has a one-man play out of the bag about the psyche of Robert Worley, suggests that maybe Worley was just a guy struggling to reconcile the pressures of appearing masculine and straight with his attraction to Corey, lashing out at her in bouts of frustration. He says, being in a relationship with someone who is abusive would make sense as an explanation for this, especially when you're talking about when men are attracted to trans people. My sense is that we're talking about someone who might be closeted about their homosexuality as well, and so there might have been all kinds of internalized hatred and internalized oppression. My sense of it is that it was a dangerous situation that Dorian needed to get out of. So are they saying, forgive me, forgive me for where I'm going with this, are they saying that because Worley may have been closeted, he ended up closeted? In a roundabout way, yes. Okay, just making sure. So the body, the body was found in Dorian's closet after he died. So it's hard to get a straight answer of what happened or even when he died. This is a strange kind of decomp. It was actually like a mummification, correct? Well, one of the investigators described it as the body was halfway between mummified and decomposed. When you have all of this wrapping. What kind of wrapping? A naugahyde-like material, like a fake leather with tape around it. Oh, God. No air is getting to it, but it's still losing liquid out of its body. So the body f- sort of floats in its own soup. That's disgusting. Now, they knew it had to have been there for an extended period of time to reach the level of decomposition and mummification that it was. But the real clue that helped them identify the time was that they found flip-top rings wrapped up with the body. What's a flip-top ring? So, back in the day, you would have a little ring that you would pull out of, like, a beer can instead of how we now open a beer can. And so you would pull it off and toss it. Okay. 
And so when did they stop doing that? When did that go away? The mid-70s? Oh my God, he'd been in there forever. Right, so there's no way that he could, this could have happened a few years prior. Mm-hmm. This had to have happened in the early 70s. So they thought, what, like 15 years ago at that point? Well, this was 93. Yeah. So 70, 80, 93, 20 years. So whenever the, the New York reporter was kind of asking the investigator about why it was wrapped in this way, he said, people just wrap a body in whatever's available. It's just spontaneous. You wrap it up, then you put it in a suitcase, then you put it in the closet. Then you just look at it periodically and wish it would go away. I feel like this guy's talking from way too much personal experience. Well, he's probably been doing this for a few years. No, I meant like I feel like he has a body in the closet that he just wishes would go away. Like I feel like his analyst would have something to say about this. I don't know that wrapping a body is just a spontaneous thing that you do just just because it's Tuesday. I think most of the time it is. Of course, there are premeditated acts. But when something like this happens, especially how I've talked about it, you know, these homicides occur whenever there's a threat or an imminent threat occurring. They're suddenly dead what do you do with this body wrap it up you just cover it up you cover every inch of it up which would be wrapping it okay i can kind of see it i can see it and then in this case he's black he's possibly transsexual what's he gonna do go to the police and claim self-defense and so an interesting point about this is that he had lived in the apartment that he was in for about five years years okay that's less than 20 (laughs) yes that's my math at work people so that would mean wait that would mean that dorian Corey brought bobby with him that would that would mean that it would mean he he moved he said to the movers just put it over there and so pepper labasia who is fierce as hell (laughs) and kind of amazing who at the time was one of the only drag queens around that had known Dorian in the 60s said, child, that's what I don't understand. I used to be in her basement apartment. She lived there before she moved. Honey, it was damp and dank and I never smelt nobody. And so another kind of damning interview that really points to more of a homicide case is that while interviewing Topaz, uh, another drag queen in the scene she said, I can tell you now, child, because they're all gone. My cousin had shot her lover, and I had to bring Dorian the gun. It was a twenty-two, honey, silver. They were good friends, and she had to get rid of it, and Dorian bought it. And the reporter says, did you know the mummy was shot in the head? And Tobias says, what mummy? You don't know? No, I don't. Are you serious? So that puts a gun in Dorian's possession. So that's why that's significant. And the fact that Topaz was not just like taking this gossip and twisting it to make herself part of the story and talk to this reporter, that she had no idea that this event had even occurred. And she thought they were just asking about a gun or something like that that would have been nefarious if found in a an apartment. She did not know that she was... Describing the way in which the person who perpetrated a crime came into possession of the weapon. Right. It was completely unbiased. And so then there's the example of the letter, the confession. Right. The, this poor man tried to rob me. 
So that's not real. Okay. But Lois said that she did give the police something, saying it was a thing I gave to the police. She was writing a story. It said something about he wanted her to have a sex change. It said something about revenge, and revenge wound up in murder. And this was this old thing that Dorian had written by hand on yellow paper. And so it definitely points to that she could have had this very abusive relationship with this guy and that she had fallen into the situation that we've discussed. But I do want to end Dorian's story with just this great quote from the movie. Okay. He said, I always had hopes of being a big star, but as you get older, you aim a little lower. Everybody wants to make an impression, some mark upon the world. Then you think, You've left a mark on the world if you just get through it, and a few people remember your name. Then you've left a mark. You don't have to bend the whole world. I think it's better to just enjoy it. Pay your dues and just enjoy it. If you shoot an arrow and it goes real high, hooray for you. And so this is someone that is an amazing personality and a very, very strong person. She just emanates it. And you just can see it. You can see her strength and confidence. And even this amazingly confident person that has gone through all of this strife by being a drag queen, by being possibly transsexual, she was able to get into this situation of a battered person to get into a situation where she had this helplessness thrust upon her by the situation that she was in with Worley. I mean, I am more inclined to accept that narrative than I am to believe that he was a random intruder, given the brother's comment about hearing his phone call and the document that was original that was allegedly written longhand and handed over to police by Lois I do believe that we can reasonably draw that conclusion but even if Dorian was pushed into this situation there's a lot of misunderstanding about the idea of learned helplessness so the researcher that coined the phrase Seligman said in 1998 I have spent my life trying to cure learned helplessness this idea of perceived absence of control now they did prove that this was a thing in humans one study on college students showed that whenever they were asked to do mental tasks in the presence of a distracting noise those that could use a switch to turn off the noise even though they rarely bothered to do so performed better on the test just knowing that they could if they needed to exactly because humans when we find ourselves helpless what makes us different than a dog or a fish which they've also proven this in is that we ask why and our answer can be different it can be seen as permanent or transient pervasive or limited personal or incidental. And this all has to do with our explanatory style. Some people are more naturally inclined to believe that bad things are going to keep happening. 
those are people that are prone to get in a situation where they're more depressed, where they can be in this learned helplessness state to where some people are more naturally inclined to do the opposite. Bad things are happening, but they're going to stop soon. It's not my fault. And through his research on cognitive behavioral therapy, he was able to show that by helping people with this explanatory style, by teaching them to reframe their thoughts, that they could help people overcome this learned helplessness. So related to our like feminist critique and our legal critique of things, learned helplessness is not something that we're stuck in. It's something that we're forced into by the situation. And it does not make you a weak person. It does not make you a lesser. It's something that we can find our way out of. And sometimes finding our way out leads to keeping strange secrets. Skeletons in the closet. So let's look back at Colleen Stan. She was forced into a, an absolutely abhorrent, awful situation that no human being should be put in. And she stayed because she believed that she was helpless in the face of the company. However, just hearing that the company didn't exist. She could immediately flip that switch. The learned helplessness could so easily and quickly be gone because she had a root out. It wasn't in her nature. It was something that she believed was coming in from the outside. And once that external threat was removed, she had the agency and the capacity to move on. With Dixie, her learned helplessness was overpowering. And she was in a situation where she did not only have herself to consider, but she also had children. However, eventually, after serving years in prison, she said that she did feel that she was responsible for that homicide and wishes she had handled it differently, though she still says she doesn't know how she could have. Because she didn't have an escape. There wasn't a switch. I do think that tragically, as long as that man was living and breathing, her existence was in jeopardy. And that's sort of a strange thing to think, because I don't condone homicide, obviously. But where was her escape route? And you can see the same thing, maybe magnified, with Dorian Corey, where you have instances of the police failing this community regularly, even today. Yeah, there was a learned helplessness among the entire group. They had to keep their skeletons in the closet. But the idea that that can't change and that we cannot support people who need it, that we can't be agents for forward progress. That we can't take those skeletons out of our closet or the bodies under the bed and break the cycle. Or reach out to people who are stuck in it and offer our help, our condolences, and our sincere support. The idea that we're stuck forever with our hind feet being electrocuted. That is just a story. It's just a story. Society 13 Podcast Network. 
Redefining Podcasts, Society-13.com. I like to listen.